Gina Della from Pella. Get up to five years no interest, five months no first payment, and 5% same-day order savings at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. 555's been extended, but only through October 31st. See PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. This is going to be one of those programs that if you listen to the entire three hours, and there's no reason you shouldn't, my guess is that you will find stuff that you will agree with and you will find stuff that you will disagree with, and that's okay. That's that's what we're trying to do. It is going to be an eclectic program today. Let us get started. Yesterday, I mentioned the passing of Colin Powell, 84 years old. He had some underlying health issues. They're, they're terming it as a as a COVID related death. I I don't know that that's necessarily fair. He um he he was I, I think fully vaccinated. He was also suffering from a form of of cancer that compromised his immune system, and he ended up getting sick, and he ended up passing. Away, I, I don't don't know that it's a, a COVID-related death necessarily, and some people are pointing at this and saying, "Well, see, why, why do you bother getting vaccinated? Look, Colin Powell, he was vaccinated and he died." It, it just, I think, it underscores that for people with compromised immune systems, whether it's COVID or any number of an, uh, any one of a number of other illnesses, you know, it, it can turn out to be fatal, and it's certainly not a justification, I think, for people not to get vaccinated. In any event, I, I we, we mentioned it briefly. I, I want to kind of double back. I, I think. I think Colin Powell is an American hero, and I think the the success story of Colin Powell is something that should be a model for for generations of people. If you don't if you don't know the history of this, he his parents were Jamaican immigrants. Um, he was born in in 1937, and his parents had had come from Jamaica to New York City. And, you know, he was, he was raised in New York City. His dad was a shipping clerk and his mom worked, you know, as a seamstress. So you want to talk about like, like humble sort of origins. He went on, um, to, to have incredibly distinguished career. You know, he entered, um, the army as a second lieutenant in 1958. He was a professional soldier for 35 years. He, um, was in Vietnam. He rose to the rank ultimately of four star general. He was the commander of the U.S. Armed Forces Command in 1989. From 1989 to 1993, and, and I, just, I review the bidding here because it's going to give context for what we're going to talk about next. From 89 to 93, he was the 12th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So this was during the, the first, the administration of the first President Bush. That is, of course, the highest military position in the Department of Defense. During this time, he oversaw 98, not 98, 28 crises, including the invasion of Panama in 1989, Operation Desert Storm in the Persian Gulf War against Iraq in 1990 and 1991. He was also the architect of what they call the Powell Doctrine, which suggests that American military action should be limited unless it satisfies some criteria regarding American national security interests, overwhelming force, and widespread public support. Um, he was the 65th U.S. Secretary of State serving under President George W. Bush. Now, this was, of course, following 9-11. Um, I, I think, you know, Colin Powell would tell you that one of his his regrets as Secretary of State, he was 
given the task of arguing in front of the United Nations about the, the need for you know, um, to, to go into the invasion of Iraq, and he was the one that made the case that the evidence suggested that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. That that turned out to be, of, of course, untrue. But you know, he, he the, you, you listen to this background, and here you have somebody who served incredibly, in, incredibly well. I, I think it, it's not unfair to say that he was, in fact, an, an American hero and an American success story, and and obviously. It was con- part parts of his tenure were controversial, and just like you know anybody who's going to be involved in a series of military actions and then you know get involved in politics and stuff, there there will be things that you could point to and you could say, hey, he, he was dead wrong about you know the weapons of mass destruction, and you know he he shouldn't have done this or he should have done that or whatever. But but if you look at this man's career as a whole, I, I think he was a statesman, and like I say, he was definitely an American hero. So he he passes away over the weekend. Now here here are the comments from some of the former presidents, Bill Clinton. Colin Powell lived the promise of America and spent a lifetime working to help our country, especially our young people, live up to its own ideals and noblest aspirations at home and around the world. All right. Barack Obama. General Powell was an exemplary soldier and an exemplary patriot. He was at the center of some of the most consequential events of our lifetimes. Right. Uh, George W. Bush. Laura and I are deeply saddened by the death of Colin Powell. He was a great public service servant, starting with his time as a soldier during Vietnam. You know, all, all I think appropriate tributes and, and, and comments. Now, I took four years of high school Latin at Nicolay High School in Glendale. My, my Latin teacher was a wonderful woman. Her name was Juanita Bonham, and she passed away a number of years ago. I'm not sure I was a great student in Latin, although I can read a little bit of it. But the, the two Latin phrases that I, I remember distinctly from my high school days, one is in wino verum, which means in wine there is truth, and the other one means de mortem, de mortem is de mortem nil nisi bonum, which essentially means speak nothing but good of the dead. And I have always tried to live by that second adage. All right, so here you have, you know, George Bush, you have Barack Obama, you have Bill Clinton saying what they're saying. Okay, into this, oh, yesterday, Wade's former president, Donald Trump. Here's his comments about the passing of Colin Powell. Quote, wonderful to see Colin Powell, who made big mistakes on Iraq and famously so-called weapons of mass destruction, be treated in death so beautifully by the fake news media. Hope that happens to me someday. He, Colin Powell, was a classic rhino, if even that, always being the first to attack other Republicans. He made plenty of mistakes, but anyway, may he rest in peace. But anyway, may he rest in peace. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I understand whenever we talk about, you know, former President Trump, it is divisive in many sort of ways. And I also understand that there's things that, you know, he, he has done that some people think get too much attention, some people don't think get enough attention. But that is his comment on the passing of General Colin Powell. Wonderful to see Colin Powell, who made big mistakes in Iraq and famously so-called weapons of mass destruction, be treated in death so beautifully by the fake news media. Hope that happens to me someday. He was a classic rhino, if even that, always being the first to attack other Republicans. He made 
made plenty of mistakes, but anyways, may he rest in peace. 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Your reactions to President Trump's reaction to the passing of Colin Powell. We discuss in a moment. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, I guess people can feel different ways about Colin Powell. I think objectively, you look at the guy's career, 35-plus years in the military, rises the rank of four-star general, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, navigates the U.S. through the the Persian Gulf War, um, the invasion of Panama back in the 80s, goes on to become the Secretary of State. If you want to criticize him, you can say, okay, he was wrong in arguing that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction in 2003, which was the basis for the invasion of of Iraq, and you can argue whether or not that, regardless that whether that was the right thing to do or not, but 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 Colin Powell, I think by any stretch of the imagination, was a, an American hero, and and I don't I, I don't use that term lightly. So today, former President Trump wades in, and he was not obviously a fan of Colin Powell, and Colin Powell was not a fan of former President Trump. But, you know, you, you heard what he said. It's like, oh, he was nothing but a rhino, and boy, I hope when I die, the, the press only writes nice things about me like they're writing about him. And oh, but anyways, may he rest in peace. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Ryan in Oconomowoc. Hi, Ryan. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, this this is just such a perfect example of why we just cannot have a person. Well, we can't have Trump or, or a person like that as the leader of our country. It's so that saying that kind of stuff. It's it's just so shameful. It, it's um, you know everything he says and does has to be in some way. He has to turn it for himself for himself to feel better about himself to um it is you know, know to, it's to, it's interesting you say that right because that's what struck me normally okay first of all if i mean i really do try to adhere to that passage that that belief of if somebody's died and you don't have anything good to say about them just keep your mouth shut i mean that i think that's really yeah, good advice course. for most of us but but you're right that the whole thing it's the gratuitous slam on Powell. oh he was nothing but a rhino but you're right it, it's this narcissism it's all about him you know why well, I, I want them to treat and, me the same i mean it's it's like really yeah it, it, that's what really struck and, me and so when you have a when you have this man who, who is a leader, I mean, no matter how you look at it, he he's a leader, and he he's trying to position himself still as like the leader of the Republican Party. When you have somebody saying stuff like this, I mean, our, our kids look will look at this stuff. How how do you say that this is the example yeah. that we set? That, I mean, there are, you know there are very few people who are you know, that we look up to <laughs> these days, right. the president of the country or the leader of a, a government sect should be somebody that you can look to and say, that's a respectable person, whether you agree with the politics or not. Yeah. That is just that what, what he just says like this. It's, it's so well, shameful, right. so disrespectful. Yeah, and I think, thanks. And, and of course, you, you don't have to say anything. And that, that's why I was giving you the contrast, the statements of President Bush and President Clinton and President Obama. And they're all, and I'm, I'm sure they had different feelings of, about Colin Powell, et cetera, et cetera. But it was all, I mean, if, if can't we agree that the guy had an incredibly distinguished career and, and was a true American patriot. I mean, can't can't we agree? And, and what a compelling success 
story. You know, you're you you go from you know being raised in by by two immigrants from Jamaica, one who works as a shipping clerk, one who works as a as a seamstress, and, and you advance to the to the where he advanced to. I mean that that's the American dream. That's what we should be preaching. Um, Colin Powell, pretty much apolitical, I, I think. You know, in in general, but you know, but he was a military type of guy. But this is it, it just it is such classic. Trump, I guess, is what strikes me about it. Louise in Cedarburg. Louise, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Last night on uh, PBS, they showed a retrospective of Colin Powell when he retired. That was 2006. And I hope they play it again, and I hope they advertise it, because it was exact, so well done about him. He talking about his life, and, and, and they also played background of what was going on in the country. Now, he served, what, five presidents? Yes. Uh, and he did what he was asked to do. He said no one ever asked him what party he belonged to. He said no one ever asked me that. I belonged to the military. I was the military. Whatever job I was given, I did my very best. He felt that out of uh, very bad situations in which he found himself, there was an opportunity for tra- change. And he is a true American hero, and out of the military, uh, served his country to the max. And he felt, at the end, they asked him, what would you want to be remembered for? He said, I re- want to be remembered for doing the best for my country mm-hmm. and serving my country, and that's what he did. You know, one example he gave from the very beginning, when he uh, came home from the first of Vietnam, and he served twice in Vietnam, uh, he went to get a hamburger in Birmingham, and, of course, they told him to go to the back door. When he came back, after the Civil Rights Act was packed, passed, he went in through the front door, and they were happy to serve him. Mm-hmm. And he said, we live, this country lives by a system of laws, and we need to be part of that and do what we need to do to uh, be good citizens. And he said, in the last, to, um, uh, was, why do you think so many people around the world want to come to this country? Yep. Because of how we treat human beings. And this is a wonderful retrospective, and I hope uh, that PBS plays this again, uh, because it really shows his whole background. Nobody is perfect. Absolutely. But whatever president asked him to do, he did the job. Thanks for the call, Louise. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I want to get a couple calls before we run out of time. You know, for people who don't know, he he was wounded twice. Once once in Vietnam, where he... um, I don't know, fell through one of those traps that the enemy would plant, and apparently like a poison spike went through his foot. And a second time where I, the, the second I'm a little bit less clear on, but I think he was, he was helping pull people out of a, out of a burning helicopter and stuff. But, but regardless, I mean, this is a guy who has a distinguished military career. And, well, here's a text that kind of summarizes this all up. Jeff, we see once again that the less that Trump interjects in issues like this, the better. If he has nothing good to say, at least respect the family and say nothing. But that, that's kind of what my, my thoughts on this are. I mean, it's like if you, if you don't like Colin Powell, that, that's okay. But why do you need then to interject yourself in this thing? Because candidly, I think it just, it, it makes you, you know, look 
look small when you, you know, do this sort of stuff. And and again, if, if you know, let historians write the legacy of Colin Powell, good or bad. But, you know, what, why do you feel the need to jump in in things like this? Todd and McGuanago. Todd, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. What do you think? I think that our former president is a world-class buffoon. And once again, he's proven it by criticizing a man with great honor, great integrity, a war hero, a veteran who served proudly while the former president himself was able to avoid service, avoid, right, yep. <laughs> avoid service himself through you know, through connections, you know, both you know financial and political that he is able to do. But how he has the gall to either criticize in the past. John McCain, a prisoner of war, or now Colin Powell as being a rhino, which he said the same things about McCain. I mean, it's be beyond ridiculous. And it, right, the no, thank, statement that yeah. he continues to make, and that thirty percent of the population that will support him no matter what. You know, the Republican Party, and and I'm a fiscal conservative, although I lean socially liberal on many things, but. The Republican Party really needs to get their act together and move on from this guy. Well, thanks. I mean, I guess I just look at the whole thing and it's just it's also gratuitous. And, and you alluded to like the John McCain stuff as well. You know, I don't I don't know why we refer to him as a hero. In my opinion here, and I'm paraphrasing it just a little bit. You know, heroes are the ones that don't get shot down. Oh, OK. You know, really? OK. And, and I think, you know, it is an interesting point. For, there are lots of people. During the Vietnam War, and Vietnam was a little bit before my time, but I, there were lots of people who used, who did not want to be sent overseas to fight, and they used various mechanisms to avoid having done that, and, and that, that's all well and good, and it's fine, but it does take a certain amount of gall to, you know, criticize those people who, who ended up going and serving and getting injured and all those things. In, in any event, I just, I, I, I saw yesterday that, that uh, President Trump had, had just hadn't said anything, and I thought it was best to leave it like that. But uh, this morning, he just apparently couldn't resist, and you got this statement, which to me, it's it's classic Trump, and it's one of the reasons why, regardless of how you feel about his various policies, and and candidly, I mean, when Trump was president, I I tried to have a nuanced view of this. I, I supported a lot of his policies, but the 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 individual was, it's remarks like this that just make you say. Gosh, you know, I, I wish he would just concentrate on on the policy matters and try to keep this sort of not narcissistic grudge settling, um, keep it to himself. But, of course, we can't expect that to happen. Back with more in just a minute. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back. All right. The term cisgender. You know what cisgender means? You, you, I, I, I confess that this is not, this is an, a new word, at least that I've become familiar with recently. It's, it's not something that we threw around a lot, if it even existed back when I was a kid. But cisgender, it's an adjective. It, Here's the dictionary definition. It denotes or relates to a person whose sense of personal identity and gender corresponds with their birth sex. So, in other words, I'll use me as an example. I was born 
male. I have male parts. I identify as a male. Therefore, I am cisgender. That is very good news, I think, to my wife, who is probably very happy that I am cisgender. But that that's it. So if you are cisgender, you are somebody who, born of a particular gender, and you identify as that particular gender, boy or girl, whatever. All right. So that is the background. Why are we talking about cisgender? Well, here's where it gets interesting. Oberlin College is a very, very fancy and very, very expensive liberal arts college outside of Cleveland, Ohio. It's one of the oldest, uh, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, liberal arts country, college in the country. Um, it is very, very pricey. To, to go to Oberlin before financial aid and things like that costs kind of around 80000 bucks. So it's a private liberal arts school, very, very well, let's emphasize liberal and very, very expensive and very, very pricey. Okay, so that's the background. Oberlin College. What does Oberlin College have to do with cisgender? Well, hear me out here. At Oberlin College, they have a, a special dorm. It's called Baldwin College Cottage. And this is the home, Baldwin College Cottage, is the home of what they call the Women and Trans Collective. The college website describes the dorm, so it's a dorm, as a close-knit community that provides women and transgendered persons with a safe space for discussion, communal living, and personal development. Cisgender men, that would be men, people born as males, who identify as males. Cisgender men are not allowed to live on the second and third floors. Okay, so it's it's a special safe place area we've set aside for women and presumably transgender individuals. I presume it's going to be um, people who were born with male anatomy but identify as females. Okay, so that, that that's the background and fine if that's it's going to be the, this safe space. Okay, so why are we talking about Oberlin College and Baldwin Cottage and cisgender? Well, well here's the deal. Um, I have in my hands, and this was was published a, a letter that was sent to um, the officials at Oberlin College complaining about something that happened not that long ago at this particular dorm that is set aside for transgender students and or and or females. Okay, so here's what the email was. Uh, let's see. I will quote it. Um, the person explains that, you know, one day in early October, they were at the school. And what happened was they found out, the school announced that there would be a work crew, which would be coming over to the dorm to install new radiators. All right. So that's it. They're going to put in new radiators um, here. All right, let me well, let me read you exactly what the email says. I am reaching out, um, and so he, he gets a note saying, hey, contractors are going to be coming over tomorrow morning. Uh, they'll be entering rooms to install radiators. And this means that um, they're going to be in your room for a period of time to complete the work. You know, we're having the people come over. All right, so here's what the student says. 
I had not been contacted about any sort of radiator installation before this email. So right away, the word update stood to me as untrue. I grew concerned reading the second line, which informed me that I had less than 24 hours to prepare for the arrival of the installation crew. And I was further perturbed by the ambiguous for a period of time. In other words, they have to be in your room for a period of time to complete the work. In general, I am very adverse to people, I'm very averse to people entering my personal space. The anxiety was compounded by the fact that the crew would be strangers and that they were more likely to be cisgender men. In other words, the work crew that's going to be installing these radiators are more likely to be people who were born as males and identified as males. I was, this is, the, I continue with the email. I was angry, scared, and confused. Why didn't the college complete the installation over the summer when the building was empty? Why couldn't they tell us precisely when the workers would be there? Let me stop for a second. Anybody who's ever called a worker nowadays, you know, why, why couldn't they tell me exactly? Why were they only notifying us the day before the installation was due to begin? The next day, I waited apprehensively. The workers began installing in common spaces, and I could see immediately that they were all men. It was clear that the college had not made a special request that male workers not be allowed onto the upper floors of Baldwin. Predicting when they would reach my room was pure guesswork. I was trying to anticipate whether I would be in class when they arrived or whether I'd have to welcome strangers into my room only to be ejected to allow them space to work. When the insistent knock eventually came, I scrambled to get my mask on and repeatedly shouted, coming through the door. Four or five construction workers stood outside, accompanied by someone who I could only assume by his neat polo and clipboard to be an emissary of the college. We stared at each other for a moment before I moved aside to allow the workers to enter. The emissary began issuing platitudes that the work wouldn't take long and encouraged me to prop the door open. I asked meekly if I could actually not have a radiator installed in my dorm. I knew the answer was no before I even said it, but hey, it was worth for a, a shot, a shot. I left for class, and by the time I had come back, they appeared to be done. The polo man warned me that he would return later in the week to check the insulation. Sure enough, they were back the next day. I felt mildly violated and a little peeved. And then, you know, he goes on to talk about how, you know, his sense of security and safety um, was was violated, and he was scared and angry after the work crew, which was cisgender men, were going to be showing up to install the um, <laughs> to install the the radiators. Okay, our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. So he, he, this guy has uh, this this person has now gone public with the concerns and anger at the college for sending over a work crew to put in a radiator and the work crew they they were cisgender men and he was made to leave his dorm room didn't have any choice they wouldn't not put in a radiator and and he's just all upset he's upset with the college he feels scared he feels nervous our number 855-616-1620 that is the acunate mortgage talk and text line all right here here is my my question and i guess it, it's two part does the guy does the person i don't mean to call him a guy does the does the transgender person have a legitimate beef and and if so how how does this person plan to go through life? 
and I mean this, I mean this sincerely. I mean, if you are so emotionally fragile that the idea of workers coming into your dorm room to make an, an installation, in this case, to, to put in new radiators, and the fact that the workers are, are cisgender men, meaning men who identify as men, and the very fact that they are going to show up and do this. If this freaks you out to the extent that, you know, you are now just angry and scared and nervous and you are triggered, is there any hope for getting through life? 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It seems to me the appropriate response of the school, even a liberal arts school, is, look, we're, we're sorry if you were upset by this, but you know what? There is this thing called the world out there, and you're going to have to figure out how to cope with it. And we appreciate that there's real discrimination and real issues that might affect the transgender community. But you know what? We got to install these radiators, and, and we're sorry. The idea that the work crew that comes out to install the radiators are are cisgender men, <laughs> you know, you're, you just you got to live with it. What do we say? Wagner's rule of life number one: life is tough. Get a helmet. And and ca- quite candidly, th- this is this particular issue. It doesn't seem to me that you even need one of those hard shell football helmets. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Legitimate complaint. How does the college respond to something like this? We discuss. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This one of our texters, Jeff. One of the reasons I listen to your show is because I learn things like cisgender. Thank you. <laughs> yes, and somebody else said, "Well, wait, I, I'm, I'm a little unclear. If I, if I say I'm a man, that, does that qualify? No, no, it, that, that's not enough because man is is not specific enough. Cisgender is a term which means you are a man, a man who identifies. You were born as a male and you identify as a male. So it's it's more inclusive than that. Look, I." I, look, I I don't care about the, the the underlying issue about you know do you you know what do you identify as or things like that. But this is it's such an interesting thing that you've got this student at a school or paying like eighty grand to to go to this liberal arts school, and the kid is all worked up at the fact that they've got to replace the um, the radiators in the dorm room, and the work crew shows up when they were supposed to show up. Uh, accompanied by a guy from the college who's wearing a polo shirt, Mr. Polo Guy, who's checking off to make sure the work is done properly. And the guy is all bent out of shape. The the student is all bent out of shape because the work crew are what he presumes to be cisgender men, and, and he doesn't want them, He the student, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be pejorative, he, she, whatever they identify as, the student does not want them in their dorm room and decides that they're going to now take this whole thing public, saying, oh, this is just an outrage, to which I, my comment is, how are you going to get through life? You know, Seriously, how are you going to get through life if you are triggered and traumatized by the fact that the work crew that shows up at your dorm room to replace the radiators with appropriate notice and appropriate supervision, they are comprised of cisgender men, just the very presence of whom in your dorm room triggers you. 855-616-1620. Chris in Cedarburg. Hi, Chris. Hey, how are you? Good. You know, what do you think? really disgusts me. It disgusts me. My husband's an electrical engineer. And you know what? Everybody is usually happy to see him when he comes with his crew to do put the power back on, the lights, the everything else. They're, they're, you know, they're so happy. And then, you know, believe me, they are not interested in any type of of 
uh, I, I don't even know what you'd call it, some type of relationship or, or attraction or anything. They're there to do their job and to move on and get their paycheck so they can feed our family. Yeah. So, you know, this is just nuts. And, and you know what? I'll tell you what. When the heat's not on or the air conditioner's not on, how is Junior going to feel? Well, well, that, that's it. Well, Chris, can you imagine if if Oberlin College, let, let's say your husband was one of the contractors that worked in Oberlin College, and they got this note saying, okay, this is, you said he's an electrical contractor? That's what he does? Correct. Okay. Correct. So, electrical it, okay. engineer. Right, an electrical so, engineer. So, so let's say there, there's like electrical work that's being done in, in each of the dorm rooms, whatever they're doing. And they sent out this notice and they said, okay, well, well, here's the deal, sir. We want you to come over and we want you to do this work, but we don't want to trigger some of the students that are there. So you have to ask and determine whether your workforce is cisgender men, what their sexual identity is, what they relate as. And, and we expect you to have, I, I don't, I don't know. The person that goes into this person's room, we expect them to be whatever. I don't even know. <laughs> Can you imagine your husband's right. reaction? He's probably lucky to get people that are going to go and do work, the work in the first place. He can't even get enough people to go to work. And isn't this kind of sexist if this is how this guy feels or person person feels? Right. And maybe he should go out to lunch that day. Find some <laughs> friends. Go watch a, a game. Leave your room. Right. Let the, the men or the people, right. men or women or people, do their job. And then come back and be thankful that you got the job done. <laughs> the, 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 the crowd says amen, Chris. I mean, I, 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 the thing that I find so laughable, and this is, this is, I, I guess maybe it's this sense of entitlement, you know, th- wrapped around a cocoon of, uh, of needing to be safe and not to be protected. But do you not understand how the real world works? Can I see a show of hands? Anybody that's ever called a contractor, and this is, by the way, is not a knock on contractors who are very, very busy. And, and what you're typically told is, well, we, we can't get out there for two or three days or, uh, you know, we can give you a window of time. We can't guarantee that we're going to be there at eight o'clock in the morning. And, and you sit there and, and you just you, you wait and you wait and then you're just thrilled when the plumber shows up. You're thrilled when the electrician shows up. You're thrilled when the heating and air conditioning people show up to take care of the thing. Can you imagine this idea if we got to a point where we'd go and say, well, okay, we want to know about the, the makeup of the crew that you are going to be sending out there. I mean, again, and I, that was what struck me as a story. Not only is this just, a, 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 again, a, a story of this kind of entitlement that's there, but it's the larger question about if somebody legitimately feels feels this way and feels strongly enough that they are going to go public about this and try to pretend that they are a victim because the work crew that was allowed to go to the second floor of this thing to replace the uh, radiators, that that was comprised of cisgendered men. And the very notion that somebody would be on the second floor who would be a cisgendered male. My, my question is, seriously, how are you going to get through life if this if you are so, so I don't know, scared and uncomfortable with that. I mean, what, what are you going to do for the balance of your life? Because I've got news for you. When you go out into this thing we call the real world, when you leave Oberlin College and you have rented an apartment somewhere and the air conditioning goes out or you need to call an electrician like Chris's husband or electrical engineer and, and or you need the, the hot water, the hot water, the water heater has gone bad or whatever, and you call those service people, I guarantee you if you start quizzing the place saying, okay, now, 
now, are these going to be cisgendered men that you send out to do it? You, you know, <laughs> guarantee you, you're not going to get too many people that are going to come out and help you out. So you better be real self-sufficient knowing how to fix all that type of stuff. And again, how do you go out in the real world? And the answer is you, you don't. And I, I hope that this is an isolated example of an overreaction to situations. But I'm I'm afraid it's not. Back with more in just a couple minutes. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, very glad to have you with us. All right, there was a time, and maybe maybe your parents or your grandparents can relate to this, but there was a time before we had an effective vaccine for measles, which was my, my uh, that, that was my, I, after my time, because I remember getting like the measles shots and things like that, which effectively, um, at least until recently, pretty much eradicated measles as a disease in this country. But there was a time when measles was viewed as a childhood disease, and the idea was parents would have measles parties so that they, their kids would get sick and get exposed to them. And you might say, well, wait a second, what, what do you mean? You, you find out that the neighbor's kid has measles and you take your kid over to, and get them exposed so they could get sick? Well, why would they do that? Well, they would do it because once you have measles, you, you build up, you have a natural immunity. Once you have it, as a general rule, and I guess maybe that there, there's exceptions and there's unicorns that are out there, but once you have measles, once, once you've had it, you've recovered, you're, you're, you're not going to get it again. Now, the problem, of course, is you get measles and there's a very, very small percentage of people that have really, really bad results of that. So you, you question the wisdom of saying, okay, why, you know, why would anybody intentionally want to get sick? But the idea would be measles was viewed for most people as a routine sort of childhood disease. So the kids were going to get it at one point or another before we had vaccines. So let's just, let's just have them get it and get it over with. And then they don't have to worry about it for the rest of their life. Because after you had it and recovered, you had built up natural immunity. Of course, again, the risk was that you have a really bad adverse reaction to the measles in the first place. So that's why I think most of us would argue that the vaccines are a better way to, to go. But there was a time before we had vaccines. But there was an effect of natural immunity. Once you had the virus, you're not likely to get it again, which brings us to the present day. Now, I always have to lead off with this. I am pro-vaccination. I, I am. I, I was vaccinated as soon as I had the opportunity to be vaccinated. Um, I'm I got, I'm saying I got the flu shot yesterday. I, I don't, I don't have adverse reactions, knock on wood to these things. People will send me texts saying, well, you know, five years from now, you might die from this. Well, I, I, I can't tell. Five years from now, I might walk out and get hit by a bus. Don't, don't know. I, but, but I've never in, of course, my lifetime, I have not had adverse reactions to flu shots. I haven't had re- adverse reactions to the shingle shot. I mean, my doctor says, get it. I end up getting it. Okay. And I haven't ever had an adverse reaction to it. So I am pro vaccine and I, I've gotten the, um, COVID vaccinations. Now, interestingly, before the vaccinations were available, I also had COVID last November came down with it. Don't know where I got it. Um, and I, I blame my wife. She blames me. We, we don't know. But 
the, the good thing about us getting COVID was we had very, very mild cases. And I never mean to downplay it because I, we, you know, we were lucky. But for me, COVID was, it was one day of a fever and it was like a very mild cold. And, and that's, and so I was lucky. But I'm not poo-pooing it. I appreciate that there's some people who end up in the hospital. I know a couple people like that. And there's people that, you know, die from it. That That's just the reality. That I was lucky. But I also know, because I got intrigued by this and I was having some other blood work done, that after I had COVID, at least a few months later, now I, I think I probably had the test done I had the test done as part of uh, something else that I was having done. So it was a few months after I'd recovered from COVID, and they did a special antibody test. And I know I, I, I still had antibodies to COVID. I don't know if I still have them. Don't know. Didn't change my decision. I went ahead, even though I've had COVID, I went ahead and I got the vaccination. But I, I knew that I had antibodies, and that's why, you know, at least back in the day before the vaccinations came out, that was kind of one of the questions. The general thinking was that, you know, if you had had COVID, your immune system, you had immunity for at least six months. Now, I understand there's been different variants, and I'm not a scientist and don't play one on the radio, but there, there is this immunity that, that comes to the front, which brings us to the latest issue. Here, here's what the Wall Street Journal describes at it. Some workers want COVID-19 recovery accepted as evidence of immunity. Previous infection should be recognized as proof of protection and exempt employees from vaccine mandates, workers say. Some workers, this is in the paper today, some workers opposed to vaccine mandates on the job are increasingly pointing to the same reason for their objection. They already had COVID-19. Nurses, factory workers, and professional athletes are among employees asking that immunity from prior COVID-19 infection be recognized alongside vaccination as sufficient protection of against the virus. Um, and it quotes a 51-year-old nurse at a large teaching hospital in Boston doesn't want to get vaccinated because she fears potential long-term side effects of the vaccine. She was infected with COVID-19 in December after exposure to a patient. She said blood samples she has provided to two clinical studies of immunity among healthcare workers have shown a high level of circulating antibodies. She said she was denied a medical exemption on an employer's vaccine mandate and she faces firing. She said, my frustration is I've got protection. I should not be clumped in with people who are vaccinated, survive, who are vaccinated. COVID survivors are not the same as unvaccinated, but we're treated like we are. There should be a third category. Even Anthony Fauci, you know, who, who I mean, of course, has been touting the vaccines, said, you know, that right now we're learning more about post-infection immunity. Now, we still recommend vaccines because, you know, there, there hasn't been as much research into this whole notion of immunity. But I think it raises this interesting question. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, in my personal case, had covid I knew at least, you know, when I got tested, I had some of the antibodies. I went ahead and got the vaccine anyways because I figured it, it can't hurt. But let, let's tee this up. For people who have had COVID, who have recovered from COVID, should they be treated differently than people who are unvaccinated and have never had COVID? 855-616-1620. Or does natural, does, does immunity as a result of having it recovered, should that not count? Should we just throw it out and pretend it doesn't exist? 855-616-1620. How do we handle this for the people that have had it and have recovered? What do you think? We discuss in a moment.
This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Five five six one six one six twenty, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, so the people who have recovered from COVID, who have antibodies, are suggesting, wait, we, we should not be treated the same way as people who are unvaccinated because those antibodies give us protection. And and that's that's always been the, the theory. I mean, I remember when I recovered from COVID, I talked to the people from the State Department of Health and they were saying, well, you know, you at least, you know, if this is before the vaccinations were out there. Yeah, for at least at least the next six months, you know, you should assume that you are you are you've got some degree of protection. Now, the antibodies, admittedly, it's probably different for different people. But of course, we're finding that with the vaccinations as well. Should we create a second a separate category for people who have recovered from covid I don't know, in the last six months or the last eight months or the last year, 855-616-1620. I think it's something that we need to consider moving forward. Again, I'm not an anti-vax guy. I had it. I went and got vaccinated. But I mean, is it is it fair to lump in people who've recovered from COVID and probably do have antibodies in the same way we treat those who are unvaccinated? Let's start with Zach in Waukesha. Hi, Zach. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Sure. Um, so like I was, I was uh, telling the, your producer, uh, you know, I just got, I'm one, I'm vaccinated. I also recovered from COVID. Right. Um, but I just got back uh, from the UK and I know different country, different rules. Um, but when you went into a large um, concert or um, certain flights over there, you know, there's three, you could show a negative um, COVID test okay. to get into some concerts or show that you're vaccinated right. or... They also had within four months from a doctor's with an antibody test, you were good. You didn't have to show it. So another little passport thing. So, you know, they gave people the extra option if they didn't want to be vaccinated. Recognizing you know, that there was recognizing that there was a degree of natural immunity. And so they were they, that was like that third category. Yeah. So, you know, if, if businesses, you know, want to give a four month or six month, I know it's probably different for other people. Um, you know, if they want to do this and then, you know, maybe in or six months we're away with this show that you're vaccinated i hope we are <laughs> so right. we can just go to go to concerts and do whatever right. you know and if people don't want to get vaccinated maybe businesses hey herd immunity or whatever right now you guys don't need to get vaccinated if you don't want to um you know probably you know someone's going to complain that they got vaccinated other people didn't but nothing's perfect and you know there's someone's always going to complain well yeah believe me thank believe me zach you're preaching to the choir on that i guess i i look at this and and i I don't think it's right to just poo-poo this. I, I mean, I think the people, and, and I've been, again, and I, I, I try to take a what I call a nuanced view of this, and um, and and I, I encourage people to get vaccinated, but I also acknowledge that if we're going to follow the science, the science has always said that people who have had COVID and have recovered have a degree of, of immunity for at least a certain length of time and we, we don't but we pretend that that doesn't exist now i guess what what i don't know enough about is how long like i say when last last year about a year ago or so 11 months ago you know when i had it and i'm talking to people they said well you you should plan on being good for about 6 months and i don't know where where i had it it was before the delta variant i had the more traditional type of covid and i don't know enough about the science to suggest that having the the original type of covid does that give you protection against the delta and things like that but i i do think 
that we, we just kind of poo-poo this. And I do think it deserves some degree of consideration because it just makes sense to me that there is an element <coughs> of natural immunity that, that's, that's been out there. And for people who are reluctant to get the vaccination because they believe they've got a degree of protection, they're, they're just treated as being, oh, well, you're, you're flat earthers. And I don't know that that's fair. Um, Jeff, I had COVID, no vaccination, um, Due to adverse effects. That being said, I wasn't feeling well approximately eight hours later, got tested again. The doctor was surprised that I'd become, be, been coming in. Um, so, you know, doctor said I was immune months later. So th- they had this. Jeff, there's no money to be made off of natural immunity. Well, that's kind of a cynical thing, but yeah, I, I guess. It's true. Jeff, I think people should follow the science. No vaccine required if previously infected. Well, I, I think you have to look at that. And, and look, and I, I'm not saying that I still have antibodies. I know I had antibodies a couple months after, you know, I got sick. I'm not saying I still had antibodies, but I, I do think that that's one of the things that employers should perhaps be looking at. And the Biden administration, if it wants to be candid, should be looking at and saying, all right, maybe we need to have this third category of people who do have that natural immunity. Now, maybe it requires, you know, a, a blood test to show that you've got antibodies. Maybe it requires some people seriously figuring out how long does that natural immunity last? Because I'm I'm not going to suggest it's like chicken pox. And, you know, once you've had it, you're you're you can't get it again for the rest of your life don't know enough about how the virus operates but at the same time you know don't we have don't we have a degree of, of this this issue and shouldn't we at least say all right maybe this is something that we should be considering with regard to this jeff recall the first 6 months of covid and all the calculations towards herd immunity involved natural antibodies that was and still is in part the science. Then we added the vax, uh, the vaccine to the metric, but with the participation less than anticipated, natural immunity has been dismissed by the powers that be. I think the science is rigged, therefore we have been misled. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know if the science has been rigged or not, but I do know that at least in the beginning, scientists acknowledged that there was a degree of natural immunity that was going to last. Because like I say, they they told me you're good for at least six months. You might be good for a lot longer than that. Now, again, it's it's all academic because I've gotten the vaccine. But I do think if we're talking about, you know, forcing people out of their jobs, we at least need to consider maybe there's another alternative out there, which is the immunity that's built up from when people have gotten sick and have recovered from it. Now, again, the ideal situation is that you don't get sick. I mean, I wouldn't wish COVID on anybody. Mild case, intermediate case, severe case. Wouldn't wish it on anybody, which is a justification and an argument for getting the vaccine. But but for people who have recovered, I, I think we deserve to treat them in perhaps a different way and figure out what the science really says, as opposed to just lumping everybody into the same category. Back with more in just a minute. Back for more. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner. 
You almost have to feel sorry for, for Joe Biden. His approval numbers are, are down for a variety of reasons. The, the, the resurgence of COVID, the poor way he handled Afghanistan, the problems at the border, and, and the, the fundamental problems going on with the economy right now where you have in inflation that is just, at this point in time, out of control. Now, I understand people are saying there's nothing to see here and all that, but inflation affects people's you know, pocketbooks. So you've got the cost of goods that are going up. And in many, for example, last week we did the story about how, you know, people's social security payments are going to go up like 5.2% or whatever that is, which is the most in years and years and years. Well, that, that's the good news. The bad news is the reason it's going up is the cost of living is going up dramatically. And you can make a strong argument that that, that payment, that social security increase isn't going to be enough to cover what costs are. Plus you have all these situations in Involving the supply chain problems. You know, we had the news story about how there's all the cargo ships that can't get in and there's nobody unload them and there's no trucks to get there. And we're looking at, you know, empty shell, empty shelves, Joe, for the late fall and for the Christmas holidays. All that's going to be, you know, extremely bad. On top of that, Joe Biden, who's always been historically portrayed as a friend of organized labor, he's getting whipsawed because there's always a pendulum when it comes to employment. Sometimes in our nation's history, the leverage is on the side of the employer. There's lots of people looking for jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So the employers can behave in a certain way. And right now we're in a period of time where employees have a lot of power because there's not enough people to do jobs. So what you have is you have 1,400 workers that are on strike um, with Kellogg's, you know, the cereal maker. You've got uh, John Deere. Those workers have gone out on strike, shutting down production. So you have organized labor is now flexing its muscles and saying, you know, we want more money. We want all these various things, which is all well and good. But what happens is when the companies capitulate, give them more money, that means the cost of consumer products ends up going up more and more. I mean, you think the money that Kellogg's is ultimately going to have to pay its union employees, regardless of how you feel about the strike, but Kellogg's pays more. That gets passed on to consumers. So we're now in this period where I think organized labor is starting to get more clout than perhaps it arguably had over the last five or 10 or 15 years. That comes at the same time that Joe Biden is trying to say nothing to see here when it comes to rising costs. Well, well, that's not true. And I guess the, the big fear is if you've seen Somebody was telling me the cost of a jar of peanut butter just gone just gone absolutely gone through the roof, and you're going to see that with more and more consumer products. If you've been to the grocery store lately, you know what used to cost you forty dollars costs you fifty bucks now, and it's probably going to do nothing but increase. And from the perspective of the Biden administration, if he doesn't think he's going to be held accountable for it, fair or not, well, he's I think living in fantasy land. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs> This week's sponsor for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by Great Midwest Bank, is Kohler Services. Give them a call at 262-357-3300 or visit KohlerServicesWI.com to see all they have to offer. From inspiration to installation, reimagine your bathing experience and contact Kohler Services today for a free consultation. It is a wonderful, wonderful sponsor. We're glad to welcome them to WTMJ. All right. There was a a time when I think people 
one of the employment options, a, a job that was viewed as really a great career opportunity for some people was to go into law enforcement. And I know a lot of people who were criminal justice majors in college, or maybe it was a situation where they knew somebody, maybe dad was a police officer, maybe grandpa was a police officer. A lot of times it, it's it's a generational thing. You have multi-generations of families who go into law enforcement. And there was a situation where if you would go into and you would choose a career in law enforcement, what, what you would find is you could make a decent living. I mean, you're not going to have a Learjet. You know, you're not going to have a place in Monaco. But you, you could have a, a decent life. And you could have a degree of job security. And you knew that there was going to be a pension. And you could retire probably when you hit around the age of 50 or something like that and then go on to a second career. I mean, I know a lot of people who, who loved that. They also, they loved the work. I, I think that there's some professions that um, people are very, very passionate about. And I think, you know, I know a lot of people who are in law enforcement, and they really feel, at least when I was working with folks, they, they really felt like they were doing something positive for the community. They were keeping other people safe. They were getting bad guys off the street. So it, it wasn't just a job that you went to. It was something that, you know, you really were, were proud of the work you did. And you felt you were doing important work. Now, there was always a, a downside to being involved in law enforcement. And aside from just kind of like long hours, there's an inherent danger. Let's face it, for most of us, when you go to work, and I understand that there's workplace violence and things like that, but for most of us, when we kiss our spouse in the morning and, and go off to work, you know, you're, you're going to, you know that there's not a risk that you're not going to be coming home. I mean, the nature of, from the vast majority of us, the nature of our employment does not put our lives at risk. Well, in, in law enforcement, that's always in the background there. You, you never know when you're out on patrol, for example, and you pull over the car because the taillight's out. You know, you, you, you don't know whether or not the person that you've just pulled over the, in the car, whether they've got a body in the trunk or something, and they're going to think nothing about shooting it out with the police officers. You know, when you get a call to report to some of these crime scenes, you don't know what you're going to walk into. And, and there's always there's always that element of risk that, that is down there. But it's been the balancing for the the, the idea that, you're, you know, you're working in a profession, you're making a decent salary. Not, like I say, you're not going to get rich, but you got good benefits and those things. So that's always been kind of the social compact, and it's always been the thing that has encouraged people to consider law enforcement as a career. Well, somewhere along the line, that, that has changed. And in the minds of some people, at least, the police have become the enemy. And it doesn't matter what it is that the person has done. When the police show up to make the arrest, everybody's pulling out their cell phones and they're screaming at the police, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Etc. So now you've got that, that added scrutiny that, first of all, you know, the, that the public, instead of, at least in some cases, viewing the cops there to protect you, they're viewing the, the police as this hostile occupying force. You've got, I think, more danger than than ever. Let's just take Milwaukee as an example. You have, you know, the the murder rate that's through the roof. 
The rate of shootings is through the roof. The number of people who just flee from the police. Every time you make a routine traffic stop nowadays, you pull over the car because they blow through a red light. You know, the chances are better than even that the person behind the car is driving a stolen car and they're going to run from you, you know, putting everybody at risk. So it's gotten to be a lot more stressful. It's gotten to be a lot more dangerous. And in some circles, including some of the the political chattering class, you, you the, the public and the politicians don't have your back. Well, there's a real-world impact of the kind of defund the police and the police are our enemies movement, and that is that that people people don't want to do the job anymore. Um, they can't find folks that are willing to come in. I'm looking at a story in the Wisconsin State Journal. Madison police fall short on recruits as interest in the cop falls across the U.S. Um, Madison last year managed to hire only 24 of 34 people it was authorized to add in the budget. They, They had spaces for 34. They could only find 24 people who wanted to come in and do and do the job. And this is not unique, for example, to Madison. The city of Milwaukee lost 500 officers to retirement over the past five years, and they haven't come close to replacing them. Again, that's not a unique sort of situation, because what's happening is you have more and more police officers who are getting to retirement age, who maybe they'd work under normal circumstances, they'd work another five years, they're saying to heck with this, we're, we're, we're done. You know, we, we don't want the politics, we don't like what's going on on the street, we don't like the added danger, we've done our time. At the same time, you have less and less, fewer and fewer people who are being attracted to this as, as a career. And as a result of this, you're, you're having these even beyond the monetary problems, you know, the arguments about, you know, do we have how many police officers are we going to hire, et cetera? Um, you know, what you're seeing is that they just can't fill the spots. Milwaukee Police Department, um, let's see, 131 officers last year decided to call it a career. Like I said before, last five years, over 500 officers have retired. And there's just not enough People coming in who want to do the job. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is a huge issue. This, This is not light at the end of the tunnel. This is, in my opinion, it's a train coming the other way. Because even if you have the money to hire cops, the question becomes, where are you going to find the people who want to do the job, given the way that we are treating law enforcement nowadays? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this is going to be a huge problem, and it is a very, very undercovered story. All right, where is the next generation of police officers going to come from? And if you are a retired police officer, if you've got police officers in your family, I think it's tougher now than ever to be a police officer. And I think there's a lot of people who are just saying, to heck with this, we can we can find other ways to make as much money without the aggravation that we're finding out in the community. And that's a bad place to be. 855-616-1620, we discuss. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. A 
855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, I, I'm, I'm looking at a story that quotes the, the head of the Madison Police Union, and, and this is this is a problem that's all across the country. It's not unique to Milwaukee or Madison, but they're talking about, you know, why are so many officers retiring? And, you know, they say, look, the parting officers are saying the current environment, it's not worth it to stay on. Those financially able to retire fear being involved in a use of force situation in which they do everything according to the law and their training, and they still get singled out by the public as having done something wrong. For those leaving before retirement age, he says, a lot of people are saying, look, this is not not what I, I came here for. You know, this is not what we signed up for. The way police are viewed in the community is different now than before. And it, it's just it's just not worth it. And I mean, I, I respect that idea. I am just concerned, though, if more and more people have that attitude. And I understand where it comes from. Where, where are we going to find the next generation of police officers? And the problem is right now we're, we're not. Let's talk to Todd in McGuanago. Todd, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Good afternoon. Uh, as a retired police officer, uh, last 25 years, the last 17 in a, as a detective, uh, you know, the problems that you ran into or are running into right now are no different than they were during the, during the anti-Vietnam War protests and, uh, and, uh, civil rights movement back in the sixties where you couldn't hire anybody. You couldn't find law enforcement personnel then either. After the Vietnam War ended, a lot of the, veterans that came home from serving there took jobs especially in the city of milwaukee and that they had a, and, and across the country right that that filled those positions now you know what happened here to law enforcement in uh 2007 2008 when when the economy took a dump and people were losing their jobs uh, you know the teachers as well as law enforcement and fire personnel got vilified for the benefits that they had and and that it was too lucrative and they shouldn't have these great pensions and everything else. And those were the same people that prior to that, that were successful in their own businesses. And, you know, that would say, well, you could never pay me enough to be a police officer. Well, that all changed. The attitude towards the police changed then as well. Now, you know, notwithstanding everything that's happened, uh, with with the different movements and that and uh, and and obviously what happened in Minnesota was an right. aberration and and justifiably so that that individual was convicted and nothing's worse than an officer who what we used in a profane language was uh, to, but I won't use that right <laughs> please don't because then I have to hit this button to yeah poop, to poop on the badge you know is one of the worst things you can do is what what kind of happens in those situations and they don't get any sympathy from the honorable men and women that serve in law enforcement now as far as the future goes uh, and like I said I retired it'll be five years ago this December but uh, it'll come back around Again, uh, but, you know, the, the counties, villages, uh, cities and townships that need the law enforcement are going to have to readdress the cuts that were made back mm-hmm. in uh, 2008 and that and bring back some incentive to get these people back on board again. And you're you're 100 percent right. You make a good middle class uh, living. Uh, but you're never going to get rich, right. and, and you're not, you know, but but you get to retire early. Right. I, I mean, I retired at 56, just shy of 57, but, you know, in the city of Milwaukee, and I have friends that were sergeants there as well. I mean, 
some of those guys started out as cadets and were able to retire in their forties and go on to another career right. with DOJ or you know right. another department. So it, it's still a great field and a great profession. But if you want to be loved, be a fireman. <laughs> Thanks for the call. That, if you want to be loved, be a fireman. Well, it is. I mean, it, and it's just looking. At, this is see. This is part of the problem that, that's out there, and it, it, the whole thing is. Where is the next generation going to come from? For example, I mean, you've got a lot of, uh, and, and that's see, that's what I look at. It, it's I look at all these things. Where's the next generation of electricians? Where's the next generation of plumbers? Where's the next next generation of HVAC guys going to come from or gals going to come from? And the same thing is true with law enforcement. Now, I mean, I'm not lumping plumbers in with law enforcement, but it's again, what what is it about this profession? A lot of the things that made it an attractive profession maybe 30 years ago, it's not that way anymore. And if you've got some of the best and the brightest people who might otherwise be interested in going into, for example, career law enforcement, they're sitting there and they're saying, gosh, I, I, I see this. If I, if I make an arrest and somebody thinks, even though I did everything right, somebody you know doesn't like the way I handle this thing, next thing I know, I've got all these people that are protesting, demanding that I get fired, and this whole thing that's out there, and you've got all these lawsuits, and people are dogging me and doing all these type of things, and Lord forbid I ever get into a life and death situation where I need to pull my gun and defend myself. Um, all right, then, then I, I know it's going to be, I'm going to be vilified for the rest of my life. Okay, I, I can do that. Or, you know, maybe I can find some other profession that I can apply my talents to, and I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Uh, Tony in Watertown. Tony, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yeah, you know, listening to this, it's, it's just amazing. I'm imagining why would I want to become a police officer if I was 20 years old? I'm not, I'm 60, but why would I when I have to deal with, and, and mind you, I'm not a person that would want to go in. These guys and girls go in to someone that someone's shooting. They go into the gunfire, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and you don't get paid millions of dollars. Nope. But then you got to worry about people who are trying to kill you. Yep. You got to worry about people trying to sue you, who trying to get you convicted. If And yep. I'm not saying they're all good cops. No. There are bad cops. There are bad people in every profession. But I'm saying the good ones. Why do you have to worry? Why would you want to become a police officer? I know that. Thanks for calling. I, I agree, and that, that's the challenge moving forward. And, and again, let's 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 understand because I mean, our, our previous caller Todd was talking about this. You, great middle class job, benefits, all those type of things. But the thing that differentiates being a cop from say being a teacher or being a radio talk show host or, or whatever is that there is this element of danger that you try not to think about but it, it's always it's always there because you're going to be dealing with situations where you're going to be dealing with criminals you're going to be dealing with situations where there's violence and look and i understand any of us can be the victim of an armed robbery or something like that but for the police officers you're dealing with that every day every time you do something every time you make a traffic stop every time you go to somebody's door to investigate something every time you reply to a oh we think that there's a burglar that might be in progress you never know what you're going to come across and what you come across you might end up costing you your life that's that's a factor that most people don't have to deal with live from the annex wealth management studios at historic radio city this is the jeff wagner show and now wtmj's jeff wagner
Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you with us. We rarely talk about hyper-local issues like, 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 for example, local school board races, simply because the, the scope of the listening off, uh, audience is so broad that unless there is a larger point to be made, you know, you could say, okay, why, why are we talking about something going on with the Fox Point Village Board unless it's something that, that has a, a larger point that might interest everybody? Because if you don't live in Fox Point, and even if you do live in Fox Point, why do you necessarily care about what's going on with a particular village board? The same thing is true with, with school boards. Um, there is a very, very interesting thing that is playing out in Mequon, Thienesville, which is just to the north of Milwaukee. There is is a recall election. Four members of the school board are going to be up for recall. The recall election, I think early voting starts today, but the recall election is going to be held two weeks from today. There is a very, very motivated group of people who have been pursuing the, the recall and it's it, it's a multiple prong approach the the issues without going into too much detail the issues involve it, it the, the way the covid situation was handled teaching of critical race theory a belief among the people pushing for the recall that school board members have contributed to an academic decline in the district and that they've essentially turned the operation over the, to the district to the school superintendent who, at least in the minds of some, um, hasn't been doing a very good job. But it's a very, very heated race. I, I don't the, the motivation, I, I mean, I think that the people pushing for the recall certainly are, I think, much, much better organized and they're more passionate, perhaps, than the people who are subject to the recall. But I don't know how, how the whole thing is going to turn out. But what's going on in Mequon Thienesville is sort of endemic of this thing that's been going on with school boards all, all across the area, all across the state and all across the country, namely that you've got a lot of parents who are unhappy with decisions that local school boards or school superintendents have have been making. And and these are all the issues, whether it's critical race theory or or doing away with gifted and talented programs. We're going to talk about that as a separate conversation, you know, one day soon. Or, or, or masks in the schools or closing the schools down for virtual learning or not closing the schools down fast enough and going to virtual learning. You know, parents have been extremely engaged in all these sorts of issues and they've been attending school board meetings and they've been speaking their minds in ways that perhaps you, you never saw happen before. And, and candidly, a, a lot of the, I, I want to say more traditional School board folks, they're, they're just, they're just amazed and they're appalled by this. You know, the, the idea that, you know, parents are getting involved and parents are, are passionate and parents are showing up and, you know, they're, they're yelling at the school board members and they're voicing their opinions and what people thought maybe was this like little sleepy community and we're going to do stuff and nobody's going to look at what we're doing. Now they're finding parents are again showing up and I don't know, voicing their opinions when they see stuff that they don't like that's happening. And and the backlash is, oh, this is terrible. You've got the Biden Justice Department that's now looking at, you know, for people who show up at the school board meetings and, you know, that they voice their concerns. You know, we're going to see if we're going to view them as domestic terrorists. Uh, there's a story in the Journal Sentinel the other day talking about these school board members who are saying, well, you know, this is, you know, we're, 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 you know, 
getting all sorts of criticism for this, and we're having people that are showing up, and they're passionate, and they're vocal, and they're being divisive, and don't they realize the message that they're sending to their kids? All right, our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, let me be really clear here. There is never a justification for showing up at a public meeting or reaching out to some local official, school board or otherwise, and and threatening them with violence. Okay, that, that is and always has been a crime. And, and there's never an excuse for that. I also think that some of these tactics that have been employed on both the right and a lot on the left of of, of let's Let's show up outside the houses of elected officials or whatever, and let's scream and chant. And that type of stuff, I think, you know, has been extremely, I found it to be boorish in the extreme. You know, you you saw that in Wisconsin. I'm not saying it started during the Walker administration, but there was a lot of that that went on during the Walker administration. You had certain people who were upset with some of the things that Scott Walker was doing. So they'd, you know, they, they'd stalk his house and they'd scream things or they'd go into restaurants and they'd yell when he and his wife were eating at dinner at restaurants. So, you know, you've, you've had this boorish behavior that's been going on for a while. Now you, you have it directed with people who are very passionate on local issues, particularly school board issues, and are, are showing up and are voicing their opinions with perhaps an aggressiveness that you haven't seen before. And the response is, oh, my gosh, the, these parents, these parents are out of control and they're domestic terrorists and they're showing up and they're screaming at performance and things like this. All right. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. With, without, obviously, as I said earlier, when, when you have people who go in and, and cross that line and, and make threats or behave in boorish fashions, all right, obviously that, that crosses the line. At the same time, though, I mean, this idea that Parents should feel uncomfortable going into a school board meeting and expressing, even in strong terms, the fact that they don't like the mask mandate or that they don't like the fact that they're going to push uh, critical race theory or that they don't like the fact that they're going to get rid of the gifted and talented programs or they're disappointed and concerned that performance in a school district is going downhill. I think it's a great thing to have parents involved. I think one of the reasons you have seen a decline in the school system, particularly the public school systems around this area and across this country, is in many respects parents have been punched out. You know, parents have been, by punched out, I mean they, they, they haven't cared. They haven't taken an interest in what school boards and school superintendents are, are doing. I think it is great that parents are starting to get involved, now, understanding that there's limits and there's lines that you don't cross. But, I mean, if people are, are motivated about the issue of critical race theory, for whatever, enough to come out on a Tuesday night and express their opinions, I think on balance that's good. It's not bad, and I think it's the type of participation that we should be encouraging as opposed to, oh, there's these crazy parents that are out there, and how dare they second-guess the school superintendent or whatever. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Don't we want parents involved? I mean, and if parents 
object to something that's going on in the school district, don't we want them to show up? Don't we want them to voice their opinions? And this idea that school board members might be a little bit uncomfortable because, gosh, you know, we had a bunch of parents that were there, and, and this this isn't what we signed up for. Heaven forbid somebody's paying attention to what we're doing. Well, maybe if that's really the case, maybe you shouldn't be on a school board then. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. I, I have been interested in, in, in watching, you know, what's going on in particular the last couple of years as citizens have gotten more involved in, in local government, you know, showing up at, at sleepy school board meetings, for example, to express their concern with the direction that some of the school boards or the school superintendents are taking with their kids. Now, admittedly, you can carry this too far. And, you know, we've we've seen this on, by the way, both sides of the aisle where people show up and they disrupt public meetings by screaming and chanting and whatever. You saw a lot of that bad behavior go on in Wauwatosa, for example, you know, last year when it was involving common council meetings and these pushes to we want to fire the police chief and all this sort of stuff. And, and admittedly, you see it with school boards, too, where people show up and they get out of control and worked up. But. But I think what's going on here is this general attitude that some people sort of have is that how dare these parents show up and voice their opinions that they, they don't like what a school superintendent is doing or they don't like that the school board, what the school board is doing with regard to the school superintendent. I mean, I, I think part of the reasons the public school system in particular has suffered is because parents have been apathetic. They haven't showed up. They've allowed... I don't know, these, these educators to kind of run things, and in many cases, they've run them into the ground. Jeff, absolutely, we want parents involved. As long as they're being respectful and not attacking people, they should be able to be there. If school board members don't like it, then maybe they need to get off the school board. Criticism of what you do comes with any political office, school board, or Otherwise, I think that that's an element. Jeff, leadership is hard. We need to genuinely listen and consider more than just a single point of view. It's hard to have a legitimate debate today. Well, that's absolutely true. No question about it. It's it's difficult. Um, Let's see. Jeff, you're absolutely right on parent involvement. It's necessary for the success of a school district to have active, positive parent involvement in the entire process, top to bottom. Without parent involvement, you end up with bureaucrats making politically motivated decisions that are both arbitrary and capricious and have nothing to do with is good with its good what is as to what is good for students and the families. So I, I, now here's the other perspective on that, an interesting tweet. Jeff, I work for a local school district. No one in our district minds public input, but lately the people are horrific. Their behavior is unacceptable, and that cannot be removed from the equation. I'm not on the board, but my role has me involved in meetings. I've gotten death threats and been called horrific names. You cannot just remove that from the conversation. No one minds civil conversation and dialogue. Now let's be let, let's just stop there. If you're... If you're making death threats to a local official, whether it's a school board official or a member of the common council or whatever, you are violating the law and, you know, you need to be punished. That that would be a crime. At the same 
time, and I, and I appreciate that, and I'm not condoning, you know, bad behavior. At, at the same time, I think if citizens are showing up and they are saying something to elected officials that the elected officials do not want to hear, and they're saying it in, in mass, this idea that, okay, well, you know, we, we know better. We don't have to pay attention. The school superintendent says this, and, you know, we agree with the school superintendent. So all, all you parents who are concerned about this issue or that issue, you need to just kind of go away. Now, I, I don't buy, I don't buy that either. If you're going to object, you need to do it in a respectful fashion. But I think, I think packed meetings are, are, are good getting input. Now, the problem that sometimes comes with these meetings is that it's the squeaky wheels that show up. And again, this isn't a comment on the right or the left. Well, I was reading a story the other day, and I forget. Oh, it was it was like a it was like a, it was a defund the police story out of Milwaukee, and there was some committee hearing, and the the only people essentially that showed up were members from one of these kind of fringe groups who were essentially arguing, let's defund the police. So the larger community, you know, wasn't there. So, again, you had this this meeting, you know, it was sort of taken over by a small, underlined small, small, non-representative, yet very, very vocal group. So I'm not saying that, you know, just because you have a bunch of people that show up at the meeting and start complaining about whatever it is they're complaining about that that means you have to do what they're suggesting but but the idea that you've got people that want to come and they want to have input I, I think is a general rule you know that's that's a good thing to have particularly when it comes to school boards get community participation in there now this recall that's going on in mequon thienesville i i don't know the momentum seems to me to be on the side of the recall organizers but i, I don't know ultimately how that's going to play out but i know in this particular case there is a feeling that the school board just simply hasn't been responsive to the needs of the community the question is Again, how much of the community really feels that way? But it's going to be an interesting thing because if the recall succeeds in Mequon, my guess is you you might see this tactic used in other cases and against other school boards across the area. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk to John McCure, find out what he has on his mind on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. This is Jeff Wagner.